Hello and welcome to episode number 172 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Murat Somer. He is a professor of political science at Koch University and the author of Return to Point Zero, The Turkish-Kurdish Question and How Politics and Ideas Remake Empires, Nations and States published by State University of New York Press. The book examines the historical and structural factors behind how Turkey's Kurdish question emerged decades ago, why that formative period is still crucial today, and the factors that sustain the conflict in the present day. But before we get started with the interview, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Murat Sommer. He actually started preparation for a Turkish version of this book back in the early 2010s, a more optimistic period in terms of a peace process that was ongoing at the time between the state and the PKK. Obviously that failed, broke down, and of course the landscape has darkened significantly since then. So I started by asking Murat Sommer to reflect on those changes over the last decade. Yes, I'm actually remembering actually that uh, that time, on the surface, it was a more optimistic time. Uh, things looked better, but I'm maybe this was also misleading. As far as my understanding, my uh, studying the Kurdish conflict is concerned and my understanding of conflicts at large in the world, unfortunately, uh, it was not surprising that the peace initiative at that time failed later. It was actually foreseen uh, by the book uh, based on the analysis and the theoretical framework in the book. Uh, it was it was actually foreseeable. But yet, like everybody else as well, in 2010, as well as later uh, in 2013, when uh, there was another uh, peace initiative as a human being and as a citizen, I was, of, of course, hopeful. I hoped that it would actually uh, work, but at the same time, trying to make uh, realistic 
realistic advice and having realistic expectations, uh, I could see that the way it was designed was um, destined uh, to fail. Things looked better in 2010 because the Turkish democracy was uh, in relatively better shape and the government was firmly in power and seemed to be quite determined uh, to uh, do something and establish peace uh, with the Kurds after uh, so many decades of violent uh, conflict uh, that cost many people's uh, lives and happiness and well uh, well-being. But on the other hand, looking from the perspective of the book, I, w- I would say that these two peace initiatives under the Justice and Development Party, uh, AKP, and then Prime Minister and now uh, President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, were yet another example of Turkish uh, political actors instrumentalizing the Kurdish conflict to basically reach uh, some political goals not related to Kurds. And as far as uh, the AKP government was concerned, this uh, really was about remaking uh, the state as different uh, from the original uh, secular Republican image that the AKP uh, was really opposed to, refashioning the state, remaking the state based on its own preferences, not uh, based on broad-based consensus, but based uh, on its own plans and preferences and ideals. And instrumentalizing, basically, I'm sure that, of course, the government was sincerely interested in establishing some peace with the PKK and the Kurds. But this was really secondary to the other goal of uh, really consolidating power so that they can uh, remake the state the way uh, they they want it. And because it was a secondary, uh, this peace itself was a secondary goal, an instrumental goal to something else, it was also not well thought out. There was no plan, at least visible plan, to resolve the uh, fundamental dilemmas that that I argue in the book are necessary to address uh, this protracted violent conflict. And therefore, at the end, uh, it failed. I think the major take from this, a lesson uh, to take from this, is uh, that for, for any government uh, to, to resolve a conflict like this, uh, the primary political goal should be actually to uh, re- resolve that conflict. It should not be uh, instrumentalized to, to settle other issues, in this case, mainly intra-Turkish political conflicts. A sizable portion of the book examines the formative period of the you know, late Ottoman era and the early Republican era in particular. And that was when, as you describe it in the book, you know, the Turkish, when Turkish became much more concrete as an overarching identity and the meaning of, of Turkishness became much more concrete. So could you just describe really why and how this period was important in understanding the Kurdish issue in particular? This period is actually absolutely really important because the basic parameters uh, parameters of uh, this conflict were uh, really created during this uh, period. I make a distinction between Kurdish question and Kurdish conflict. Kurdish question is basically made by history. It was not necessarily the preference or making of either Turks or Kurds or uh, any other people, but uh, the uh, really a product of uh, the great transformations that uh, the whole world as well as the Ottoman Empire were um, going through at the time. But then why did the Kurdish question turn into Kurdish conflict, a violent conflict? So what is the Kurdish question? Kurdish question is that basically how do you transition from a multicultural, multi-ethnic, or according to some definitions, multinational empire 
empire to a nation state. 19th century, not only for the Ottomans, but also for other empires like the Habsburgs, was the uh, end of the age of empires. And everybody, I mean, uh, the political elites in the Ottoman Empire also realized that they had to change in order to somehow survive, continue the state in some uh, new reinvented form. Because it was uh, the period of nation states, modern nation states. They had to somehow adjust to that. And there were really different visions to establish this, uh, to achieve this transformation. Some people uh, thought that a cosmopolitan, uh, multicultural Ottoman uh, state nation uh, would be a solution. And other people envisioned that a kind of state nation of Muslim Ottomans uh, would be the solution because they thought that uh, somehow uh, the conditions for the coexistence of Muslims and non-Muslims were uh, becoming more and more difficult. And in addition to these projects, there were also many projects uh, based on other uh, identities like Turkish, Kurdish, Arab, Albanian, uh, Circassian, Armenian, Greek. And these the nation states should uh, be um, created from, uh, the, uh, from the empire. Now, that created the uh, uh, Kurdish uh, question because all these projects were basically placing claims on overlapping territories, overlapping people and even identities because uh, many people had also mixed loyalties and identities geographically and uh, demographically, they were mixed. The nation states that uh, were supposed to be created had these projected territories that that were uh, really overlapping with each other. So the Kurdish question was then what will happen to the Kurds? Could there be an independent Kurdish state? Uh, would it uh, survive with um, together with other uh, independent nation states neighboring? And if, if there will be an independent, independent Kurdish uh, state, um, what will be its uh, borders, uh, its structure, uh, form, etc.? If there will not be an independent uh, Kurdish state, what will be the status uh, of the Kurds within the other nation states to be uh, founded? And what will be the relationships, uh, relationship between them and the state, uh, etc. This was a Kurdish question. And this Kurdish question could be addressed, could be resolved in many different shapes and uh, forms. On paper, of course. It's not that, you know, people could do whatever they wanted. There were political limitations, geographical limitations, economic limitations, etc. But different projects uh, could be uh, envisioned. And some of these outcomes uh, from this question could be more violent and others could be uh, less violent. Uh, some would be more violent, uh, more democratic and others less democratic. So the Kurdish conflict in that sense, it was created during this formative period because according to my argument, prime primarily for political uh, reasons and primarily for political pri- because of political priorities of Turks struggles among Turks uh, themselves the more democratic and the more peaceful alternatives were ruled out. They could not be implemented. They were put to the side and uh, a conflict was created just during the end of the Ottoman Empire and uh, the uh, beginning of the Turkish uh, Republic. If you can understand why the political choices made during that period created the Kurdish conflict, the, the way the state was formed, structured, then we can also understand that uh, we are not necessarily uh, hostage to forces that we cannot really control, like uh, culture, history, geography. 
Kurdish question maybe was created by uh, history, but the Kurdish conflict was uh, politically uh, created. It was not created by any cultural difference between Turks and Kurds by themselves, not necessarily an inevitable uh, product of uh, history, but it was uh, politically created. Then in order to uh, resolve this conflict today, then we also need to take a political approach. It is possible to solve this conflict uh, politically. Yeah, thinking about that era as well, you make the point in the book, it's an interesting one that sometimes gets overlooked, I think, in popular discussions. But, you know, during those earlier years, uh, particularly during the War of Independence, for example, the fledgling uh, nationalist elites had this more flexible approach, actually, to some of these issues. So um, you describe how Ataturk or Mustafa Kemal at the time even refers quite often to, to Kurdistan as a distinct geographical space. But then over the course of the 1920s and especially the 1930s, as the republic kind of bedded in, the tone, the approach significantly hardened. So it does, does indicate that, you know, according to the context, the situation can change. Right. During the years of the War of Independence and the crucial years of the formation of the new state between 1923 and 1925, not only domestically, but also internationally, very important changes of conditions took place. Therefore, uh, it was not the predetermined preferences of the nation builders, but the political dynamics changing in domestic politics during these years but also the external conditions changing, they also changed the priorities and preferences of the nation builders. Originally, the nation builders in 1919, when they uh, built this uh, broad-based diverse uh, coalition, uh, national uh, coalition, they clearly wanted to form a nation state, but a nation state in which different components, such as Kurds, Arabs, Albanians, and Circanians, Circassians, would also uh, be recognized and would have uh, their uh, legal rights. But the original project also included uh, the Kurdish, predominantly uh, Kurdish areas in uh, what is today Iraq, northern Iraq, and uh, Syria as well. So territorially, they envisioned a larger uh, nation state. And within this larger nation states, then Kurds also would form a larger minority. But then, after the Lausanne Treaty in 1923, the Turkish side uh, fought very hard to include those former, uh, what we can call, Ottoman Kurdish areas in Syria and Iraq within the uh, borders of the new uh, Turkish Republic. But they had to surrender because the, the, the British basically didn't want uh, this. They were determined actually to uh, keep control of the uh, very resourceful, as we know, oil-rich areas of the, the northern Mesopotamia in Iraq and Syria. And the Turkish side had to prioritize because uh, they um, their most important priority was to have international recognition for their independence, to have economic independence uh, was uh, very important, to have uh, full uh, control uh, over their territory, territory was uh, very uh, important. In order to uh, have these concessions, in order to uh, gain these uh, rights, they surrendered and sacrificed the Kurdish areas. In. So in other words, two things happened, that the Kurds are a smaller minority in Turkey now after that, and also they also became a minority with their ethnic brethren forming major majorities just across the border. It, then this uh, creates a separatist threat 
that it is it becomes a border that needs to be uh, very securely uh, protected because otherwise there will always be uh, this external insecurity that uh, the possibility that some Kurdish nationalism uh, will uh, lead uh, to uh, some secessionist uh, movement. And the second very important transformation during this uh, period is that the ruling elites change, the composition of ruling elites change. First, the ruling elites, the nation builders, were a much more diverse coalition, including Islamists, Islamic conservatives, as well as moderate and radical uh, secularists. And then after the formation of the republic, we uh, see that actually first the uh, Islamists and many of the Islamic conservative elites are sidelined. So here we see that again, another intra-Turkish intra -Turkish struggle conflict. Uh, this has nothing to do with Kurds. It's a conflict among Turks, primarily among Turks, which is about how secular, how pro-Western ideals, how rapidly modernizing, westernizing the new nation uh, state will be. It is about political control. And the Kurdish conflict was here completely instrumental. The uh, in 1925 rebellion by Sheikh Said at the time, a Kurdish Islamic uh, rebellion, was used uh, by the uh, ruling radical secularist elites to sideline uh, moderate secularists and to consolidate power. This conflict, it was used by the radical uh, secularists to consolidate power at the end. It is not necessarily predetermined intentions rather than these changing conditions and political dynamics explaining why the Kurdish conflict was created at that time. I want to talk about the fact that you know, the Kurdish question is not primarily an internal matter anymore. Perhaps it never was, but certainly at the moment it's more regionalized than ever. And perhaps it's better to describe it as not Turkey's Kurdish problem, but Turkey's problem with certain Kurdish groups in the region. So it's not really an internal matter. Perhaps it was never uh, an internal matter. But what do you make of that regional aspect? You know, the, the argument that this is more of a regional issue now than a national one. This is not very really different from the formative period. Um, this is one of the reasons why uh, I called the book uh, The Return to Point Zero. Because the current period is really uh, a reincarnation of the fundamental conditions that prevailed uh, during the formation of the republic that limited and shaped the political choices that, that the nation builders uh, made. It's very similar. So it was a very regionalized and international issue between 1919 and uh, 1927. The status of Kurds and also that who will control the territories in northern Iraq and uh, Syria was uh, very much an international uh, issue. So the question that I asked in the book, and while it is all it is about Turkey and the uh, Kurdish question, Turks and Kurds, it also applies to other cases in the world. Uh, really, when there is this conflict that was really created and built into the very formation of the state and cannot be resolved without fundamentally rethinking the state itself, how can we find a solution? So we basically hear uh, then Turks primarily have to rethink the concept of security. Uh, with respect to Kurds in Iraq and uh, Syria. If Turkish political elites uh, can find a peaceful solution to the Kurdish conflict at home in Turkey, then presumably the relationship between uh, Turkey and Kurds in Syria and Iraq would not be all that much different from Turkey's relationship with uh, Azerbaijan. If significant portion of people in Turkey have significant cultural, linguistic, historical ties with people in Azerbaijan, uh, Turkish-speaking uh, people, 
in the same way, actually, uh, people, a significant portion of the people in Turkey, basically Kurds, who make up about 18-19% uh, of the population in Turkey, they have people across the border in Iraq and Syria, other Kurds with whom they share very significant linguistic, cultural, historical ties. But as long as uh, Kurds in Turkey enjoy a fully democratic and uh, prospering state and they feel equal and respected and secure, then there would be no fear of pan-Kurdish separatism. There would not be any significant political movements to achieve this goal. And the relationships between Kurds in uh, Syria, Iraq and Turkey would be basically peaceful, uh, mutually beneficial relations. So the idea here is that really uh, for Turks to uh, to understand that uh, there is a different uh, foreign policy vision that can eliminate the exter- external security uh, threat. Turks and Kurds in the region, they can also decide, decide what kind of relationship they will have in economic matters, social matters, uh, political matters. And they would also uh, determine what kind of a relationship uh, they will have with external powers from outside of the region without being hostile to these fears, these security fear, uh, security concerns, and also uh, the threat of uh, violence. Now let's uh, come to this idea of decentralization. This idea as a solution has often been attractive to some, particularly on the liberal left and among Kurdish activists. And this idea of the word autonomy has become almost a trigger flashpoint word. You devote some time in in the book to this idea of decentralization as a potential solution. Could you just talk about the kind of various aspects of it? You know, decentralization, could that be a solution? What are the scenarios in which it could emerge? Or has that boat left the port? Is it even plausible? We can say that perhaps it is uh, the one viable uh, solution, uh, decentralization or devolution. Why? Uh, Because, uh, as I also discussed in the book, a kind of separation is not a viable option. I uh, discussed the uh, Kurds in Turkey as a semi-mixed people. So there is actually that uh, in the there are uh, some uh, areas that we can call uh, Kurdish areas where Kurds make up a majority uh, and some in some places a significant majority in Turkey. Uh, and these are the regions that are also adjacent to the um, predominantly Kurdish areas in Iraq and uh, Syria. But on the other hand, however, a third of Kurds live outside of these regions. There is significant mixing, geographical and demographic mixing uh, in Turkey uh, between uh, Turks and uh, Kurds. It is uh, also impossible to draw any distinguishable border, agreeable border, uh, really, between uh, Kurds uh, and uh, the rest of Turkey. So it is not, this is not something that can uh, ever happen. We can never say ever, but in any foreseeable future uh, that can happen non-violent and without uh, fundamentally destabilizing Turkey as well as uh, the whole uh, the whole region. So, in fact, many nation states have achieved uh, significant recognition uh, for ethnic, national, uh, cultural, regional minorities through devolution and decentralization. Considering uh, the demands of the Kurds, you, we can see this actually, even though many Kurds talk about independence or much more significant autonomy than what we are talking about here as well. Realistically, actually, that the, the most of the Kurds, they realize that having more control uh, over their lives, economically, socially, culturally, where they live, and most importantly, of course, also uh, in education and uh, on Kurdish uh, language, this is the most important, uh, this is the most important concern. 
And that can be really realized through devolution, uh, decentralizing reforms that can presumably also apply uh, to other regions, uh, cities in Turkey, because not only Kurds, but Turks and many other people in Turkey, they also want to have more uh, regional governing rights. Think about Kanal Istanbul, in is- uh, people who live in Istanbul. There is this uh, mega project Kanal Istanbul uh, decided by the government in Ankara. Uh, I live in Istanbul. I would like that kind of a project that can really, uh, in my opinion, destroy uh, environment and also uh, the whole historical uh, Istanbul. I would like this uh, decision to be made by people who live actually in Istanbul to make such uh, such decisions based on deliberation and consensus building uh, among the people who live uh, actually here. Similarly, then, you know, these policy decisions uh, in um, areas where uh, Kurds live predominantly, again, you know, people there, uh, they should have control uh, over uh, their uh, future. And this is also the concrete demand of the uh, Kurdish political uh, side, the uh, pro-Kurdish, main pro-Kurdish party, People's Democratic Party in Turkey, which they call democratic autonomy. Now, democratic autonomy, uh, when you read it, may include certain propositions that uh, are not maybe very practical, but this is a matter of uh, negotiation. It is possible to actually achieve this gradually uh, in a way that will really satisfy the most important uh, needs and uh, demands of the uh, Kurds. Here, the problem uh, is that the main problem I see is not necessarily whether this uh, demand of uh, democratic autonomy is uh, well thought out, realistic or not. The problem is that the Turks do not necessarily have a counter-proposal. Because as far as Turks are concerned, a very uh, well-established political belief is that these kind of reforms conflict with, contradict unitary state. But to delegate governing powers to cities, regions, and uh, sometimes also uh, cultural uh, groupings, If that will make uh, the governing of this unitary state more successful, it will create economic development, it will make people feel more secure, more equal, etc. Why not? Many countries have done that uh, from France to Mali to Finland and to Britain, of course, and to Spain and Canada. You know, Canada is a bit different, but uh, they have done done it the most. But many unitary states have actually uh, done this. So it is important uh, for Turks actually to discuss this issue and change how they approach uh, the very question of devolution and decentralization. Another key point that you make is the fact that, you know, there's so much more mixing in terms of populations than many comparable cases. So just to illustrate this, you know, about a fifth of Turkey's Kurds live in Istanbul and only just over half of the total Kurdish population actually live in eastern and southeastern Anatolia. So when we're thinking about these issues of kind of decentralization and whatnot, it's not simply about regions of the country being dominated by particular ethnic groups. This mixing is really, you know, it's obviously developed particularly over the last few decades, but that's going to have kind of results in the future of this issue. You know, you've got a Kurdish population mixing in around various different regions of the country. And I think that point is often overlooked, but it does complicate matters quite a bit. It does complicate the matters uh, quite a lot, and I think it, it makes uh, uh, it makes certain projects uh, out there on the table not viable and not uh, not desirable. It also creates uh, opportunities for a resolution. 
with this uh, the, the devolution and decentralization, probably the most uh, uh, sensitive and controversial uh, aspect of it will be whether any power will be devolved to regions, territories, or to ethnic groups like Kurds. Uh, when the city of Diyarbakir elected administration of Diyarbakir or another city will have more administrative authorities, more jurisdiction, and maybe even some legislative uh, with respect to regional matters. Will this be actually uh, something, an authority given to Kurds or to a Kurdish region, or will this be just um, um, uh, based on territory? We can see this that this will be the controversial uh, controversial issue because as far as decentralization is concerned, you know, as I said, people of uh, Bursa or Izmir in Western Turkey or Istanbul, they want it uh, actually as one uh, as well. They want more control over their environment, education, because there are different needs. So these policies, uh, one size fits all, don't work. These identity questions will again uh, be uh, very uh, tricky, but they can be resolved uh, over time, and that goes back to the common identity uh, dilemma. Turks have to come to terms with the very fact that their own national identity, uh, the Turkish national identity, having multiple meanings is a source of richness and it should make actually Turks feel uh, more secure and happier, uh, if you will, rather than like now uh, feeling insecure that their identity is somehow uh, under threat and uh, can be undermined. That, you know, some people uh, will uh, embrace the national identity in Turkey with the name Turkiness, like Turkiyeli, and other people will embrace that national identity with the name Turkish should not matter all that much. What is important is that there is a national identity and people can enjoy uh, their differences while at the same time of also sharing a common public space and uh, having also something in common. It should not also be a problem uh, for Turks that on one hand, there is a historically existing, uh, interesting, rich, uh, important Turkish identity as a historical ethnic uh, category that uh, many Turks in Turkey share with people in the Balkans, many people in the Balkans, uh, minorities in the Balkans, uh, people in Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, uh, Azerbaijan, or, or Turkmen in Iraq. But at the same time, the modern uh, Turkish identity has another meaning, which is basically the a transformation of the Muslim Ottoman state nationalism. The Muslim uh, people of Ottoman Empire and uh, also in adjacent territories, they decided at some point to uh, build a nation a state and the name of this uh, nation state also became Turkish. Uh, that is actually a source of richness. And as soon as Turks actually uh, realize that, I think they will also be less afraid of diversity uh, within the nation, and they will also be uh, less afraid of socially and politically recognizing uh, different components within that nation. Because unlike uh, a cultural uh, nation state, and unlike this uh, first meaning of Turkishness that I talked about, a state nation and the Turkish state nation can have different components in it, and uh, that is not necessarily a weakness for that uh, state and uh, for that uh, identity. And just looking ahead, you know, we've got this scheduled election planned for 2023, unless there's an early election called. Obviously, a lot of the analysis ahead of that election is talking about how, as always, actually, Kurdish voters hold the key, have the almost deciding vote in terms of the political balances with the opposition and the, the, and the government bloc vying for influence. And obviously, that gives 
the Kurdish movement quite a bit of power, despite this enormous crackdown that it's experienced in the last few years. In theory, at least, they could, or those voters could, hold the decisive set of votes. Just how do you see uh, the Kurds' role ahead of the next election? That is actually a very important and interesting question, and it is also extremely interesting for a political scientist, because everything that we observe that is transpiring today is a kind of implicit political negotiation uh, between uh, Kurds and the opposition uh, political parties and you know, between Kurds and Turks uh, at large, actually. Kurds, for ex- uh, first of all, unlike the formative periods in 1920s, are a much more uh, unified and conscious uh, political group. By sticking together, by uniting, they have realized that they will have significant political uh, power. Uh, if you look at the waters of the HTP, there are many different preferences. It's not a homogenous uh, uh, lot at, at all. But they realize that by keeping to vote for for the HTP, then they have they have power because after the elections, unless the rest of the opposition, the, the six parties that uh, got together have uh, such a huge majority uh, that they will not need uh, the votes of the uh, HTP in order to change the constitution or uh, make the other reforms that they are planning uh, to make uh, and basically to achieve a democratic transition in Turkey, then they will need the uh, support of the Kurds. But in order to to get to that point, the votes of the Kurds will also be very, very important. For example, in the presidential elections, whether uh, the HTP uh, will uh, stage a separate candidate or will they just support the joint candidate of the opposition. If they actually uh, have their own candidate, then it will be much less likely uh, for the opposition to win in the first round. And if the election goes to the second round, then it will be a very difficult period, potentially very conflict-ridden period between these two rounds, because the AKP knows that uh, it has a lot to lose by losing the elections. So how can the opposition gain the support of the HTP in the first round? And how can the HTP trust the rest of the opposition that once they win the elections, they will not forget about the Kurdish issue and they will uh, be open to So this is a kind of negotiation, actually, whether it is done openly or not. And here, the most important thing is that the opposition parties signal uh, to the Kurds their commitment to adopt a different approach to the Kurdish issue, that that they will be open to a new uh, but different peace initiative, that they have to signal uh, that uh, they will not forget about the Kurdish question. Uh, They will be open to uh, a a peace initiative, this time perhaps based in the parliament, not in the executive, and one that will be uh, broad-based, not just directed by one uh, party, one uh, ruling party, and one that will not exclude the Kurds, that will actually talk with them, talk with them, negotiate with them, take uh, their concerns into consideration. This is an extremely interesting period because it is a period of remaking. If you compare the formative period with the current reformative period, then what was the most important issue in the formative period? It was nation-state formation and secularization. And in the interest of forming a stable, strong, viable nation-state, and in the interest of making reforms and achieving a fast uh, secular modernization, the interests of the Kurds were sacrificed. Uh, they were marginalized. In the reformative period today, the major issue is democratization. There is a nation state. There is, even though the country is ruled by a government with very um, doubtful 
commitments to secularism, to say the least. Turkey is actually a secular state. It still has the uh, potential uh, of it, even if it is not really uh, practiced. So uh, the state is that the, the concern, the issue today is whether this state can finally become a fully democratic state. And you cannot do this unilaterally. But also, this is not something that can be done uh, by excluding the Kurds, because in the formative period, they were excluded, and at least you know their interests were uh, excluded. But if the goal is uh, not just nation-state formation or secularization, uh, but if the, the real prioritized goal is democratization, you cannot do this by excluding a significant portion of the population, uh, which is basically the Kurds. Somehow, the opposition political parties must find a way to take the concerns, the interests of the Kurds into consideration and the concerns of the HDP in particular. In order to achieve that, however, um, the HDP uh, also has to um, do some things uh, because here we see the impact of, uh, of the, the legacy of violence. Of course, this whole process is, of course, overshadowed by the, by the fact that uh, there is also an armed organization, PKK, uh, with which uh, the, the state has been at war since 35 years. They will have to find a new discourse. They will have to find a way uh, to ensuring that after transition to democracy, if that happens, this will be a new period uh, which will not be overshadowed by armed groups, but by uh, freely elected uh, civilian uh, representatives of Kurds in Turkey. That was Murat Somer. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 172. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more, and they've also started publishing high quality original on the ground reporting for their subscribers. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.